Section 16 of Bullfinch's The Legends of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Age of Charlemagne by Thomas Bullfinch. Section 16. The War in Africa. Part 1. When Astolfo had descended to the earth with the precious phial, St. John showed him a plant of marvellous virtues, with which he told him he had only to touch the eyes of the king of Abyssinia to restore him to sight. "'That important service,' said the saint, "'added to your having delivered him from the harpies, will induce him to give you an army wherewith to attack the Africans in their rear, and force them to return from France to defend their own country.' The saint also instructed him how to lead his troops in safety across the great deserts, where caravans are often overwhelmed with moving columns of sand. Astolfo, fortified with ample instructions, remounted the hippogriff, thanked the saint, received his blessing, and took his flight down to the level country. Keeping the course of the river Nile, he soon arrived at the capital of Abyssinia, and rejoined Sinapis. The joy of the king was great when he heard again the voice of the hero who had delivered him from the harpies. Astolfo touched his eyes with the plant which he had brought from the terrestrial paradise, and restored their sight. The king's gratitude was unbounded. He begged him to name a reward, promising to grant it, whatever it might be. Astolfo asked an army to go to the assistance of Charlemagne, and the king not only granted him a hundred thousand men, but offered to lead them himself. The night before the day appointed for the departure of the troops, Astolfo mounted his winged horse and directed his flight towards a mountain, whence the fierce south wind issues, whose blast raises the sands of the Nubian desert, and whirls them onward in overwhelming clouds. The paladin, by the advice of St. John, had prepared himself with a leather bag, which he placed adroitly, with its mouth open, over the vent whence issues this terrible wind. At the first dawn of morning the wind rushed from its caravan to resume its daily course, and was caught in the bag and securely tied up. Astolfo, delighted with his prize, returned to his army, placed himself at their head, and commenced his march. The Abyssinians traversed without danger or difficulty those vast fields of sand which separate their country from the kingdoms of northern Africa, for the terrible south wind, taken completely captive, had not force enough left to blow out a candle. Sinopis was distressed that he could not furnish any cavalry, for his country, rich in camels and elephants, was destitute of horses. This difficulty the saint had foreseen, and had taught Astolfo the means of remedying. He now put those means in operation. Having reached a place whence he beheld a vast plain and the sea, he chose from his troops those who appeared to be the best made and the most intelligent. These he caused to be arranged in squadrons at the foot of a lofty mountain, which bordered the plain, and he himself mounted to the summit to carry into effect his great design. Here he found vast quantities of fragments of rock and pebbles. These he set rolling down the mountain's side, and, wonderful to relate, as they rolled they grew in size, made themselves bodies, legs, necks, and long faces. Next they began to neigh, to cuvet, to scamper on all sides over the plain. Some were bay, some roan, some dapple, some chestnut. The troops at the foot of the mountain exerted themselves to catch these new created horses, which they easily did for the miracle had been so considerate as to provide all the horses with bridles and saddles. Astolfo thus suddenly found himself supplied with an excellent corps of cavalry, not fewer, as Archbishop Turin asserts, than eighty thousand strong. 
With these troops, Astolfo reduced all the country to subjection, and at last arrived before the walls of Agramont's capital city, Biserta, to which he laid siege. We must now return to the camp of the Christians, which lay before Arles, to which city the Saracens had retired after being defeated in a night attack led on by Rinaldo. Agramont here received the tidings of the invasion of his country by a fresh enemy, the Abyssinians, and learned that Biserta was in danger of falling into their hands. He took counsel of his officers, and decided to send an embassy to Charles, proposing that the whole quarrel should be submitted to the combat of two warriors, one from each side, according to the issue of which it should be decided which party should pay tribute to the other, and the war cease. Charlemagne, who had not heard of the favorable turn which affairs had taken in Africa, readily agreed to this proposal, and Rinaldo was selected on the part of the Christians to sustain the combat. The Saracens selected Rogero for their champion. Rogero was still in the Saracen camp, kept there by honor alone, for his mind had been opened to the truth of the Christian faith by the arguments of Bradamant, and he had resolved to leave the party of the infidels on the first favorable opportunity, and to join the Christian side. But his honor forbade him to do this while his former friends were in distress, and thus he waited for what time might bring forth, when he was startled by the announcement that he had been selected to uphold the cause of the Saracens against the Christians, and that his foe was to be Rinaldo, the brother of Bradamant. While Rogero was overwhelmed with his intelligence, Bradamant, on her side, felt the deepest distress at hearing of the proposed combat. If Rogero should fall, she felt that no other man living was worthy of her love, and if, on the other hand, heaven should resolve to punish France by the death of her chosen champion, Bradamant would have to deplore her brother, so dear to her, and be no less completely severed from the object of her affections. While the Lady Fair gave herself up to these sad thoughts, the sage enchantress, Melissa, suddenly appeared before her. "'Fear not, my daughter,' said she. "'I shall find a way to interrupt this combat which so distresses you.' Meanwhile, Rinaldo and Rogero prepared their weapons for the conflict. Rinaldo had the choice, and decided that it should be on foot, and with no weapons but the battle-axe and poignard. The place assigned was a plain between the camp of Charlemagne and the walls of Arles. Hardly had the dawn announced the day appointed for this memorable combat, when heralds proceeded from both sides to mark the lists. Ere long the African troops were seen to advance from the city, Agramant at their head, his brilliant arms adorned in the Moorish fashion, his horse a bay, with a white star on his forehead. Rogero marched at his side, and some of the greatest warriors of the Saracen camp attended him, bearing the various parts of his armor and weapons. Charlemagne, on his part, proceeded from his entrenchments, ranged his troops in semicircle, and stood surrounded by his peers and paladins. Some of them bore portions of the armor of Rinaldo, the celebrated Ogier, the Dane, bearing the helmet which Rinaldo took from Mambrino. Duke Namo of Bavaria and Salomon of Bretagne bore two axes, of equal weight, prepared for the occasion. The terms of the combat were then sworn to with the utmost solemnity by all parties. It was agreed that if, from either part, any attempt was made to interrupt the battle, both combatants should turn their arms against the party which should be guilty of the interruption, and both monarchs assented to the condition that in such case the champion of the offending party should be discharged from his allegiance, and at liberty to transfer his arms to the other side. When all the preparations were concluded, the monarchs and their attendants retired each to his own side, and the champions were left alone. 
the two warriors advanced with measured steps towards each other, and met in the middle of the space. They attacked one another at the same moment, and the air resounded with the blows they gave. Sparks flew from their battle-axes, while the velocity with which they managed their weapons astonished the beholders. Rogero, always remembering that his antagonist was the brother of his betrothed, could not aim a deadly wound. He strove only to ward off those leveled against him. Rinaldo, on the other hand, much as he esteemed Rogero, spared not his blows, for he eagerly desired victory for his own sake, and for the sake of his country and his faith. The Saracens soon perceived that their champion fought feebly, and gave not to Rinaldo such blows as he received from him. His disadvantage was so marked that anxiety and shame were manifest on the countenance of Agramont. Melissa, one of the most acute enchantresses that ever lived, seized this moment to disguise herself under the form of Rodomont, that rude and impetuous warrior, who had for some time been absent from the Saracen camp. Approaching Agramont, she said, how could you, my lord, have the impudence of selecting a young man without experience to oppose the most redoubtable warrior of France? Surely you must have been regardless of the honor of your arms, and of the fate of your empire. But it is not too late. Break without delay the agreement which is sure to result in your ruin. So saying, she addressed the troops who stood near. Friends, said she, follow me. Under my guidance every one of you will be a match for a score of those feeble Christians. Agramont, delighted at seeing Rodomont once more at his side, gave his consent, and the Saracens at the instance couched their lances, set spurs to their steeds, and swept down upon the French. Melissa, when she saw her work successful, disappeared. Rinaldo and Rogero, seeing the truce broken, and the two armies engaged in general conflict, stopped their battle. Their martial fury ceased at once. They joined hands, and resolved to act no more on either side, until it should be clearly ascertained which party had failed to observe its oath. Both renewed their promise to abandon forever the party which had been thus false and perjured. Meanwhile the Christians, after the first moment of surprise, met the Saracens with courage redoubled by rage at the treachery of their foes. Guido the Wild, brother and rival of Rinaldo, Griffin and Aquilant, sons of Oliver, and numerous others whose names have already been celebrated in our recitals, beat back the assailants, and at last, after prodigious slaughter, forced them to take shelter within the walls of Arles. We will now return to Orlando, whom we last heard of as furiously mad, and doing a thousand acts of violence in his senseless rage. One day he came to the borders of a stream which intercepted his course. He swam across it, for he could swim like an otter, and on the other side saw a peasant watering his horse. He seized the animal, in spite of the resistance of the peasant, and rode it with furious speed till he arrived at the sea-coast, where Spain is divided from Africa by only a narrow strait. At the moment of his arrival a vessel had just put off to cross the strait. She was full of people who, with glass in hand, seemed to be taking a merry farewell of the land, wafted by a favorable breeze. The frantic Orlando cried out to them to stop and take him in, but they, having no desire to admit a madman to their company, paid him no attention. The paladin thought this behavior very uncivil, and by force of blows made his horse carry him into the water in pursuit of the ship. The wretched animal soon had only his head above water, but as Orlando urged him forward, nothing was left for the poor beast but either to die or swim over to Africa. Already Orlando had lost sight of the bark. Distance and the swell of the sea completely hid it from his sight. 
he continued to press his horse forward, till at last it could struggle no more, and sunk beneath him. Orlando, no wise concerned, stretched out his nervous arms, puffing the salt water from before his mouth, and carried his head above the waves. Fortunately they were not rough. Scarce a breath of wind agitated the surface. Otherwise the invincible Orlando would then have met his death. But fortune, which it is said favors fools, delivered him from this danger, and landed him safe on the shore of Ciuta. Here he rambled along the shore till he came to where the black army of Astolfo held its camp. End of section 16